I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saadade, 13, Kathleen, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're joined by editor-at-large for Jewish Currents, Peter Beinart, who made waves in the past few years for essentially giving up his faith in the two-state solution for Israel-Palestine and advocating for a single state with equal rights for both Israeli Jews and Palestinians. We'll be discussing that as well as a number of other topics. Peter is a very, very well-known figure when it comes to issues related to Israel-Palestine, so I don't think he needs much further introduction. And with that, I'd like to get straight to the conversation with Peter Beinart. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been wanting to have on for some time now. I'm so glad he was able to get back to me and come on the show. Peter Beinart is the editor-at-large at Jewish Currents, and also he runs the Substack, the Beinart Notebook. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. So, Peter, I guess where I wanted to start is for listeners that that don't know uh, your history, maybe you could talk a little bit about your uh, personal intellectual evolution on issues related to Israel and Palestine. Sure, I uh, you know grew up in a in a Zionist uh, family, and in a, in a, uh, and um, I was particularly influenced by my grandmother, um, who was born in Egypt and then um, uh, lived in the Belgian Congo, and then ended her life in South Africa, um, for whom Israel was a very, very important source of, I think, a sense that Jews had one country in the world that would be could be relied upon given the fragility of the Jewish community she had lived in. And also my father spent a lot of time in Israel, and it was a place that was very important to him. And I also, as a child, spent a lot of very, very happy times in Israel. 
I think that uh, I supported the idea of a Palestinian state alongside Israel, but I never really, I never really seriously considered the idea that maybe a Jewish state wasn't wasn't the right idea. I, it was really only much later in my life when I first, in my 30s, went and spent time in the West Bank with Palestinians, much later than I should have in life, that I, I began to start to rethink things a bit. I still supported the idea of a Palestinian state alongside the Jewish state for many, many years. It seemed to me that that was the, the right way to kind of deal with an inherent tension that exists, I think, within Judaism itself, which is the the tension between our moral obligation, our obligations to ourselves as Jews and our obligations to others. So I thought it would make sense to have for there to be have Jews to have a state and Palestinians to have a state alongside them. Then Israel wouldn't be holding all of these Palestinians who lack basic human rights under its control. But over time, I began to feel like the prospects of partition were becoming dimmer and dimmer. And even beyond that, that partition would not address some of the most fundamental questions at play because a Jewish state, a Jewish, to put provocative, we might say a Jewish supremacist state, a state that, that favors Jews over Palestinians, to maintain Jewish supremacy, you wouldn't allow be able to allow Palestinian refugees to return to the places they're from. And you wouldn't really be allowed, you wouldn't be allowed, you Palestinian citizens who live inside Israel wouldn't be able to have true equality. So I several years ago, I moved towards the position of one equal binational state. That is a lead in to the next question I wanted to ask. But first, what was your experience like in the West Bank? So I've now been there many times subsequently. I mean, I think the the, the thing about going to the West Bank is it, it's it's kind of one thing to know in the abstract that Palestinians in the West Bank live under the control of Israel, um, but are not citizens, cannot vote for the government that makes life and death decisions uh, over their lives, live under military law, and lack free movement. Um, while their Jewish neighbors enjoy all those rights. It's kind of one thing to know it in the abstract. But then when you go and see it uh, for oneself on the ground, the truth is that states are very violent things. And the only things that give us protection from the violence of states is the rights that we have. So in the United States, you know, you could you could say to a policeman, you know, I'm going to I'm going to uh, get you fired. I'm going I'm going to vote out the mayor who's your boss. I'm going to, you know, you have various mechanisms to try to make the state be accountable to you. When the state is not accountable to you at all, it's a very frightening thing. Um and so it means that the state can take your land, can imprison your child, can can put you in jail, can even kill you really with with almost entire with with complete impunity. I mean, imagine this was it's not so different in some ways, the experience of, you know, being black under Jim Crow in the American South, right? The state can do whatever it wants to you and your white neighbors can do whatever you want because they, because the state actually is accountable to them, but it's not accountable to you. So I, I saw so many things, had so many experiences, met so many people whose lives had been completely blighted often day to day by that experience. And it made me realize that I think that oftentimes when we talk about the United States, if it is control or its occupation of the West Bank, we tend to sanitize the reality of what it actually means for people. One thing I was really interested in speaking with you about was this idea of cultural Zionism. You identify mm -hmm. as a cultural Zionist, and I think yeah. you contrast that to political Zionism. So maybe yes. you could talk a little bit about what cultural Zionism is a tr as a tradition? Sure. So in the late in the late nineteenth century, when Zionism was emerging, 
Theodore Herzl was the progenitor of, of what we think of as political Zionism, which is the Zionism that exists today, right? Which is the Zionism of, an, of, of which is the ideology of a Jewish supremacist state. There was another tradition which first associated with a writer named Achad Ha'am, went under the name of Achad Ha'am, uh, which was called cultural Zionism. And the cultural Zionists didn't necessarily believe in the idea of a Jewish state. What they believed in was the importance of a Jewish presence in Israel-Palestine that could do a kind of cultural production, most obviously the revival of Hebrew as a living language. So, And then this idea was picked up in the 20th century by figures like Martin Buber, Judah Magnus, who founded Hebrew University, at various times, Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt. Buber, for instance, opposed the creation of a Jewish state in 1947, 1948. But he was very passionately committed to the presence of Jews in Palestine, but he wanted there to be an equal binational state. And, and for me, now some people might say, well, what, you know, what's the point of this, of talking about cultural Zionism? That is not the Zionism that actually exists on the ground. That's but, what I hear um, often when I mention this to people. Right. And it's a funny thing because I find that people often, you know, no matter how many times I say this, people tend to say that I'm an anti-Zionist anyway. But for me, the reason that I think it's valuable to remember and uh, uh, connect to the cultural Zionist tradition is it's a way for me of affirming that my opposition to a Jewish supremacist state does not mean I am indifferent to the question of whether there is a thriving Jewish culture, a thriving Jewish society in Israel-Palestine. I'm not indifferent. It's very important to me. I want to make the argument that, in fact, that Jewish culture, that Jewish society in Israel-Palestine may ultimately be stronger and more enduring under conditions of legal equality than it is under conditions of legal supremacy. Can you elaborate on that? How how do you see it as, as being stronger under those uh, conditions that you're pushing for? Because ultimately, I believe that when you hold people without basic rights, you're inflicting a huge amount of violence on them. And that violence is likely to come back in some form or another and endanger you. That's what we saw on October 7th. That's not to say that that's not to exonerate in any way Hamas from the horrible crimes that it committed on October 7th. I'm not saying that those were those attacks were justified. I'm simply saying that when you inflict violence on people, you are more likely to ultimately endanger yourself. That's why the IRA was trying to blow up department stores in 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 the in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's why the ANC in South Africa created a military wing. Most people who are oppressed will resist in a whole range of ways, nonviolent and violent. And what, as I read political science literature about divided societies, which Israel-Palestine is, I, I read the literature as suggesting that those societies are generally more peaceful for everybody when everybody is included in the government and has a vote, a voice. Because when you have a voice in government, you have a nonviolent mechanism of having the government respond to your needs. That's why the IRA is no longer blowing up things in London, right? Because Catholics in Northern Ireland got a measure of political equality. It's why Mkonti was Sizwe, the military wing of the ANC, disbanded when apartheid ended. And that's why I believe that Again, this, the view that I hold is a very, very marginal view among Israeli Jews and fairly marginal even among diaspora Jews. But I think that my argument would be that in the longer term, Israel-Palestine will be a less violent place for Jews as well as for Palestinians if Palestinians have political equality. I also want to, since you mentioned October 7th, I wanted to ask, do you think there was any other way that Israel could have reacted 
to October 7th or responded to October 7th. I believe you've covered this, this in some other interviews, but that's a question I get a lot. Well, what was Israel supposed to do? Right. So I, I, I think it's in terms of the political reality, was there any other likely response? No, uh, there wasn't. Given the, pol given the polit political dynamics in Israel and the nature of the way that Israeli political leaderships sees Palestinians and treats Palestinians, I think it was, it was very, very unlikely Israel would have responded in any other way. But that's not to say that there weren't other options. It's just that the other options were not politically feasible inside Israel, right? It's like saying, could America have not invaded Afghanistan after September 11th, right? Yes, America could have not invaded Afghanistan. It's just that there was no political constituency in that moment, right? But but it would have required an understanding that the problem of in Gaza, of the problem of Palestinians, even the problem of Hamas, is ultimately a political problem, not a military problem. And that even if you could destroy Hamas, which Israel probably can't do, that even if you could destroy Hamas, you wouldn't ultimately be bringing yourself true security because Palestinians are going to fight against their oppression. And so the most important thing, it seems to me, that Israel could do and the United States could do as Israel patron is try to show Palestinians that, that, that ethical forms of resistance can succeed. Um, and that, if you do that, it seems to me, you undermine public support for the kind of unethical resistance that Hamas committed on October 7th. I think tragically, the US and Israel have been doing really the opposite over the last two decades, undermining and defeating a whole range of different forms of Palestinian resistance, which is either nonviolent or in accordance with international law or both. But I would have, I would have, that would have been my focus after, after October 7th. So it would have been essentially to try to think about how you would strength create a legitimate Palestinian liberation organization, maybe releasing people like Marwan Barghouti, Israel's the most popular Palestinian leader who's not an Islamist, start to withdraw settlements in the West Bank. Because one of the reasons that Hamas has gained popularity is not because most Palestinians are Islamists. Most Palestinians, according to polls, are not Islamists. They don't support the idea of an Islamic state, whatever that means. But Mahmoud Abbas's strategy in the West Bank, which was essentially a collaborationist strategy of work with Israel to prevent armed resistance, to therefore win the, the Israel's trust so that you move towards a Palestinian state, has been completely delegitimized by the, by the continual growth of settlement. So if you want to strengthen opponent, political opponents to Hamas, then how about allowing, bringing non-Islamist politicians who have legitimacy out of jail and starting to withdraw settlements to show that the other another strategy is actually working? And telling Palestinians that Israel will not normalize relations with Saudi Arabia absent the blessing of a legitimate Palestinian leadership. So Palestinians don't feel that essentially the only way they can get the world's attention, right, is through an act like October 7th. So this would have been to try to change the political underlying reality. Um, but unfortunately, there's not much constituency right now among Israeli Jews for that. I wanted to talk a little bit about the political trajectory in Israel itself, especially since you know, 2018 with the basic law that was put in place. Where do you see that trajectory taking things? And is there a potential to see that course reverse? And what role can maybe the U.S. play in that? My my fear about Israel's political trajectory is that Israel has this basic problem, which is it controls millions of Palestinians in various different ways who lack basic rights. So how do you solve that problem? 
One idea was the idea to give Palestinians a state of their own, right? So at least you don't have control of millions of stateless non-citizens. But that is not a vision that really enjoys much support um, among Jewish Israelis. Uh, it's not just Netanyahu, but even the centrist, his centrist rivals like Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid, if you listen to them, they're not talking about a sovereign Palestinian state. They're talking about maybe some form of more glorified autonomy, but not actually a sovereign state. So that idea, unfortunately, is barely on the table in Israel and has really receded as Israeli, Israel has entrenched itself in the West Bank. The other idea, which is the one that I support, is to give Palestinians citizenship and equality in the state that exists today and make it, turn it from a Jewish supremacist state to a state based on equality under the law. That is also, that is even less support among Jewish Israelis. But so Israel had this, instead, Israel had this policy of managing these people who lack basic rights through kinds of carrots and sticks. Sometimes you would let more of them come into work in Israel so they might have a little more economic benefits, but always, of course, the threat of the hammer of military force. October 7th showed that this management process was really not working, right? And so it's not clear what Israel does now, given that options A, one and two are not really on the table, and this management process has really broken down. Now, there's maybe, I think the Biden administration, although it says it supports two states, is really, really trying to find some new system of managing Palestinians without basic rights. But it's not clear that that will be that possible. And I think the people in Israel, in Israeli politics, who have the most coherent answer to this problem are the people who say, we can't manage Palestinians without giving them rights. We're not going to give them rights. And so the answer is we need to have fewer Palestinians around. This is something that Israeli, that the finance minister, Betzal Smotrich, laid out in 2017 in something called the Decisive Plan, where he said, if Palest Palestinians can stay here without rights, but if they resist that situation, they will have to leave. Um, and we now have had a whole series of Israeli leaders, including, according to reports, Benjamin Netanyahu himself, who have been trying to get Gaza, uh, Egypt to open its border and have created a situation which makes Gaza completely unlivable. And I think their hope is that many of those people will leave Gaza and go to Egypt. And this sounds grotesque. It is grotesque. It sounds also kind of fanciful. But I think if we step back and we think about settler colonialism. Now that's a controversial term for some people. I don't mean to suggest that Israel or Zionism is, that settler colonialism is all you need to know about Israel and Zionism. Israel was also a Jewish refuge. It's also a place that many experiences a kind of Jewish liberation. Obviously Jews have very, very deep historical and religious ties, but it also does have certain settler colonial features, the modern political Zionist movement. Which I, is I was gonna say real quick, I think even certain early Zionist leaders like Jabotinsky acknowledged that. M many did, exactly right, because colonialism was not a dirty word in the late in the in the early 20th century, right? It was it meant progress, it meant modernization, but it also meant in reality dispossession, as it meant in North America, as it meant in Australia, New Zealand. And how did America, how did the how did the United States solve its problem? Of a, of a population of people who were there who were resisting, right? The United States does not have an equivalent of Hamas to deal with right now in North America. But in the mid 19th century, it had in some ways equivalents of Hamas, right? I mean, not Islamist groups, but it had a lot of Native Americans that it had penned into smaller areas who were resisting the encroachment of the state and were resisting their dispossession, sometimes in nonviolent ways, sometimes in very, very violent ways that killed uh, civilians, lots of them. And America did not respond to that problem by creating a, a two, with a two-state solution, 
right? Uh, it responded to the problem by so decimating that population that it stopped to be a threat. So when we look at what Smotrich is saying and other people in Israel are saying, right, in a way what they're saying is, we want to get to the stage that you are in the United States, right? Um, and, and that's part of the reason I think they look at Americans as hypocrites. Um, and so to me, one of the things that is at stake in this, in this moment is, can you do in the 21st century what, you, what, what was done in the 19th century? And I think uh, very frighteningly to me, that remains an open question. I also wanted to talk about, you know, the, the issue of anti-Semitism, because, you know, I get really concerned about anti-Semitism, but then I, I also find that when we discuss these issues, you can very easily get called uh, an anti-Semite or a self-hating Jew. At the same time, if you do talk about these issues, uh, you can attract, you know, anti-Semitic voices. I've had people that I... I will do these shows with people like yourself or Dahlia Shindlin or other voices, uh, Palestinian voices like Rashid Halidi. And you'll you'll get a comment from someone you don't even know, a rando, that'll say something that is just blatantly anti-Semitic. So I feel like it's very hard to talk about these issues without attracting anti-Semites on one end. And then on the other end, you know, not being accused of anti-Semitism because not all of us are anti-Semitic yeah. just because we criticize Israel. I agree with the Nexus document and the Jerusalem declaration on that. So how can we address this issue of anti-Semitism while also being able to talk about Israel-Palestine? Sorry for being long-winded. No, it's okay. I mean, look, I don't think this is unique to Jews, right? I mean, which is how do you say, criticize the actions of the of the government of China, right? Even though it's clear that there are people in the United States in the Republican Party who are talk about the government of China in a way that implicates Chinese or other Asian Americans, right? Um, and um, makes it seem like they are responsible. And we've seen this kind of rise of anti-Asian racism. We saw after September 11th, and there's, there there have been a lot of cases, it, uh, tragically and wrongly, in which somehow American Muslims are held responsible for what Al Qaeda did or what Saudi Arabia did or what Iran did or whatever. So I, I think that the point to make analytically is that Israel is a state and one has the right to criticize its actions and one even has the right to criticize its entire political system, right? Uh, which is in its, the ideology underlying that political system, which is Zionism. And think, if you think that there's a better basis for the, for the political system um, than Jewish supremacy, but that, but the Jews, individual Jews or Jewish institutions are not responsible for what Israel does any more than Chinese Americans are responsible for what the government of China does or Muslim Americans are responsible for what Pakistan or Saudi Arabia does. And so I think one has to be really clear about that distinction. Now, the, and, 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 and if people cross that line, then that is anti-Semitism. I also think though, if to make, make that distinction clear, it's important that American Jewish organizations are clear about this distinction, right? Because if you're saying that it's wrong to blame, to, to hold Jews responsible for what Israel does, but then you also say that being pro-Israel or being Zionist is inherent in being Jewish, right? You are yourself are actually confusing that distinction in ways that I think are dangerous and um, and and can make it easier for anti-Semites. So I think th that's, I think that would be the response that I would like to see. That also leads into the, the issue of, um, you know, a lot of people talk about Islamophobia, but I think there's also an issue that's related, but also separate of anti-Palestinian and anti-Arab 
racism. Uh, yeah. How do we tackle that issue? Because I I'll tell you, I've had Palestinian guests on and, you know, sometimes I will get a reaction from a listener in an email saying, oh, that guest sounded really angry. And I'll think, you know, are, are Palestinians supposed to be held up to this standard where they're not allowed to express grief? I mean, I, I think there is a racism towards Palestinians in that sense. Yes, I agree. And, and in Islamophobia, it doesn't capture it, right? Not all Palestinians are Muslims. Palestinians have a particular experience, a particular nationalist experience. And the problem is that um, Palestine, anti-Palestinian bigotry is so normalized in American mainstream political discourse that it kind of goes unnoticed, right? So everyone obsesses about whether Rashida Tlaib is anti-Semitic because, you know, she wants to boycott Israel or because she accuses Israel of apartheid or genocide or says the river to the sea or whatever, right? But Rashida Tlaib actually believes in one state in which Jews and Palestinians are equal, right? So I don't, that, that seems to me the antithesis of bigotry. Whereas most of the members of Congress support a political reality in Israel-Palestine in which Jews have legal supremacy, in which Palestinians don't have basic rights, right? So why isn't that considered anti-Palestinian bigotry, right? If someone said in the United States that black people should have fewer rights than white people under law, we would suggest that person was an anti-black bigot, right? Or if they said that Jews should have fewer rights than, 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 than Gentiles. So I think, but again, I think all of this is just such, the, it's the water in which we swim. And so essentially it goes unnoticed. I also wanted to ask you about a famous article you wrote. Uh, I know we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask you about a famous article you wrote, I believe in the New York Review, uh, called The Failure of the American Jewish Establishment. What do you mean by the American Jewish Establishment? And has that changed in the you know 12 or so, or 14 years now since you've written that? Um, by American Jewish establishment, I mean the kind of alphabet soup of American Jewish organizations that that ascend, that that basically support Israel unconditionally. There, um, APAC, the Anti Defamation League, the the feder Federation System, Hillel, uh, the American Jewish Committee. My argument was that by in their refusal to grapple with Israel's fundamental violations of Palestinian human rights they were actually alienating a, many younger American Jews who had been, who had grown up to believe that part of them of being Jewish was support for basic liberal principles, human equality, hu human rights, anti-discrimination, and also open debate, right? Which is also not something that these establishment Jewish organizations cultivate. To the, to the contrary, they often try to suppress it when it comes to Israel-Palestine. So I suggested back then that what I thought we would see was a growing alienation and disaffection of some younger American Jews from these Jewish establishment organizations and indeed from Israel itself. And I think 14 years later, we have seen that that's taken place. I mean, whether it's with groups like If Not Now or just the polling data suggests that there is quite a gaping generational divide among American Jews on these questions. And that was what I was getting at back then. Do you think that the organized Jewish community is also changing on these issues. I mean, back in 2010, we had a group like APAC, but now we also have uh, J Street, which back then people were saying, oh, J Street's going to go nowhere. But I do think J Street has become uh, an alternative. It's a two-state supporting group, but I do think it's very different than APAC in a lot of ways. So do you think uh, the organized Jewish community has changed in a lot of ways since you wrote that article as well? I think there is a bit of a little bit of a counter establishment. You could see J Street as part of that counter establishment. And then you have groups further left like 
Jewish Voice for Peace, and and if not now, they, they're much less well funded. Um, they don't have the same kind of political power that those establishment Jewish groups have. I think the other thing that we've seen from those Jewish establishment groups is, I'm of the belief that if their primary goal remains to protect unconditional American support for Israel, they will be forced, whether they like it or not, into a tighter and tighter alliance with the Republican Party, because the Democratic Party is on a trajectory in which the Democratic Party is increasingly going to challenge unconditional uh, U.S. support for Israel. So if you want to maintain that support, you're going to find your strongest allies in the Republican Party. And I would even go so far as to say you're going to the degree the Republican Party wants to undermine American democracy, that undermining of American democracy will help preserve unconditional U.S. support for Israel. So I think the fact that AIPAC has endorsed all of these candidates who supported the kind of the trying to overthrow the, the 2000 elect, 2020 election is not a coincidence. I think those people will ultimately be their best allies. Um, uh, if and, and, and I what I fear is that these establishment Jewish organizations, which I think are essentially hostile to, to, to liberal democracy in Israel-Palestine, may become, be increasingly becoming hostile to liberal democracy in the United States. For those of us that are concerned about Israel, Palestine, and and these issues, and you know, uh, just that region in general, how can we bridge some divides? Um, even I think on the left, there's sometimes I will meet people on the left that believe in a one state and don't want to work with anyone that <laughs> believes in a two state, and I sometimes think we get too caught up in those details. I mean, I I think you know, Jewish Voice for Peace can at times intersect with voices that are involved with something like J Street. So are, are there ways that we can bridge certain divides over specific issues to focus on those or? Yeah, I, I think that, look, I mean, I think if you think about the civil rights movement, um, the civil rights movement had a spectrum, um, you know, from the Urban League, which was kind of more moderate and more establishment to Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was more militant, had a very different style. So what I would hope would be on an issue like ceasefire, for instance, um, that you could bring together a wide group of different people who might have differences on some issues, but would would believe in this. And yes, I, to me, the 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 question to me, the most fundamental questions are: Will the United States? Will Israel continue to have impunity? Will American support for Israel continue, continue to be unconditional? And do we have? Do we support the general principle that Palestinians deserve full human rights? It seems to me if one agrees on those things, one could disagree on what you thought the ultimate outcome might be, and on various other things. And hopefully, there could be a robust coalition to work together. Just two more questions, sir. I know we're running up, uh, up okay. against the half an hour point, but what do you hope for in regards to the future when it comes to U.S. policy on Israel? Where do you think policy has to go going forward? I hope that U.S. policy gets to a place in which the United States says that the basic principles that Joe Biden outlines when he talks about his foreign policy that we insist upon when we talk about Russian abuses in Ukraine, other places, that we would apply that to Israel-Palestine as well. So we would say U.S. weaponry, U.S. money cannot be used to commit human rights violations. Um, and indeed, there's something called the Leahy Law, which is already on the books, which says that under law, the United States is not allowed to give weapons to units of a military that has been found to commit human rights violations. Just in the case of Israel, we don't even gather the data that would be necessary to know whether that is the case. But I suspect if we do, we would find that we're giving arms to a lot of units of the Israeli military that are committing human rights abuses. And I would also say that the United States should support international law. And that means that 
if Vladimir Putin can be held accountable in international, the international criminal court or other venues for what he's done, or African leaders can done, have done that, that, that Israel should also, and Hamas, should also be subject to those investigations. The United States will not stand in their way. And in fact, that the U.S. itself should be subject to those investigations. So I think that would be a radical change in U.S. policy. And I think it would have implicate, it, I think it would change Israeli politics as well. And that's the direction that I would like to see the U.S. go. The very last thing I wanted to ask you about, and I saved it for the end of this conversation because I felt like it was kind of um, out of the blue, was uh, in 2021, you wrote a, a short piece for the Binary Notebook entitled Dole Vision, where you tackled the dole loyalty trope. You talked about the Jonathan Pollard case, and I thought I thought it was relevant in light of the things mm -hmm. we hear today, mm -hmm. uh, especially with that dole loyalty trope being used against Palestinian voices like, say, mm -hmm. Rashida Tlaib. Uh, you know, I see people say, oh, she's pro Hamas. What is the difference between, you know, a Jonathan Pollard, say, on one end and someone who just, you know, has a, a sort of spiritual or cultural connection to another land, but they're also a citizen of the U.S., whether they're Israeli, Palestinian, uh, I'm Catholic. So, you know, I, I think that that piece you right. wrote, Dual Vision, was right. very insightful. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, Pollard broke the law um, and he violated his particular, uh, you know, um, oath and obligations as a member of the U.S., the, you know, uh, as a some of the U.S. government. So I think that's clearly problematic. You, you can't essentially. Um, but I do think that the, the dual loyalty, the problem with the dual loyalty idea is that it suggests that somehow Americans can only be loyal to the United States. I think that's not the case. We have many overlapping loyalties, right? Many people have religious commitments that might mean they have religious loyalties to people in far-flung countries that are, that, and sometimes there can be a tension between that and those national loyalties. And yes- Well, many people, of us are hyphenated Americans, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I grew up in Boston. There were clearly many Irish Americans in Boston who had a sense of loyalty to Ireland that led them to have a certain view about the support for the even support for the IRA um, and support for that. And, and so that wasn't they had the right to advocate for those views. They had the right to argue. And they didn't. And if they said if, if they said, I do this, I'm taking this view because I care about my ancestral land, I think that's fine. Right. I don't think there's any I don't think there's any I don't think there's a problem with that. So in, in a certain kind of way, I mean, it is true that Jews have a fear of the dual loyalty trope because it was historically used um, as a justification for anti-Semitism, for saying that Jews were not good Americans. But I think you Absolutely. can Absolutely. It's, it, it's been a dangerous trope. Yeah, I don't want to undermine right. that at but all. But I think yeah. you can be a good American and still have a sense of a particular sympathy and identity for another country. And I think as long as you advocate for that, based on your, um, you know, in an open way through the rules of the American political system. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, I want to thank you again, Peter Beinert, for coming on Parallaxes. I want you to be able to uh, let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work. And what would you want to say in closing uh, to my listeners at this time where I think, you know, I have a lot of Jewish listeners that are upset about the hostage situation. And I have a lot of Palestinians that are upset because they have relatives in Gaza. And I I think that, as you've put it elsewhere, the fates of Palestinians and Israelis are entwined with each other. And to me, that's the big point people need to take away from conversations like this. What do you want to say in closing, though? 
And uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? Sure. So they can reach. I have a sub a, a newsletter on Substack called the Binart Notebook. Also, I write in Jewish Currents. Uh, uh, I'm on Twitter. I uh, X. I, I think. Um, yeah, that my view would be that you don't have to choose. It's not. It's not either or. That um, that the fate of these two peoples are intertwined. Um, and so, in my view, um, I care passionately about the safety of Israeli Jews. I care very deeply about the safety of Israeli hostages. And I believe that in the that the only way to have true long-term security for Israeli Jews is also to have security for Palestinians. And Palestinians can't have security unless they have freedom. And so to me, um, one doesn't have to choose between caring about Israeli Jews and caring about Palestinians, because ultimately I believe that a situation of Palestinian freedom and legal equality will be best for both communities. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found my conversation with Peter Beinert enlightening and thoughtful and enjoyable to listen to. I think there's a lot of food for thought there, and I highly respect Peter. Even if you disagree with him on a point or two, I think he's really worth listening to, and he's a very smart voice in the wilderness of these topics. Let me know what you thought, though, by maybe commenting about this episode on social media or Twitter. I could use the plug from you, the listener. Also, I could use some support on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. As you know, I put out pretty much all these episodes for free. 200 of the first episodes of Parallax Views are in the Parallax Views archive at the Patreon, and uh, occasionally I release uh, some extra bonus content. I should have some bonus content out the end of this week. I'm so sorry for being behind, but I release so much content on the main feed. I want that knowledge out there for free as much as possible. That is why I'm behind on putting out the extra content, which is usually very short, except for the monthly episodes with C. Derek Barn. Although Derek is going through some things right now, so we haven't been able to record an episode of the Parallax Vlog with C. Derek Varn for that reason. Best of wishes to him if he's listening to this episode. We should be recording a new episode of that series, however, in February. So if you can, kick me some cash at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, 
uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.